0: Welcome to Face Your Faith with West Kenyon. It is our hope that today's study will encourage you to grow deeply in your relationship with God as we study the Word together. Now let's join West for today's study. Our topic today is on measuring faith, and oddly enough, we spend a considerable amount of time in our lives measuring things. And let's not hold back. Humans are obsessed with measuring. In fact, we likely can't get through one day, maybe even just a few hours, without measuring something. For example, as soon as your eyes opened today, you looked at a device that measures time and have devoted your day to that timekeeping device. You also likely looked at another device that measures temperature to help you determine the amount of clothing to wear. And it keeps going from there. You likely measured out the amount of toothpaste on your toothbrush and the length of time you brush your teeth. Then off to the kitchen, where we start to measure out coffee and cereal, or the size of a donut. And that donut we measure up in so many ways. Which one is the largest, which one has the most frosting, and potentially attempt to measure what we can't even see. And that of attempting to peer inside the donut in an effort to snag the one that has the most filling. And to think, at this point, our day has barely even begun. And the remainder of our day is going to be filled with still more measuring. We will measure what is or is not in our bank accounts and measure fuel for our cars and the cost of groceries. And hopefully all of us will be doing a very good job of measuring our distance between other cars around us and the speed at which we are having said vehicle hurdle across the landscape. Then there's the aspect of the inordinate amount of time measuring all aspects of our bodies. And from the earliest age to the oldest age, we are obsessed with measuring how tall or short we are how small or big our feet are. And we definitely measure how big or how small our waste could be, should be, or will be if we don't properly measure what we take in and properly measure how we burn it off. And let's not forget how obsessed we are with measuring the number of years of our existence on the planet. When we are young, we are fascinated and anxious over getting older and flaunting what we think we have. And when we get older, we become fascinated and anxious over getting younger and trying to find what we once flaunted. And I'll stop there, even though we could fill a book with all the things that we devote our lives to measuring. Please understand, I'm not saying that measuring aspects of our lives is a bad thing in any way, but only if we are measuring for all the right and godly reasons, and that is to grow our relationship closer with Him. But when was the last time you measured how much time you spend with God? When was the last time you measured time to set aside to talk to God and study His Word? When was the last time you measured time to set aside with your children and family? When was the last time you measured time to set aside to fellowship with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and worship each week? And many will enthusiastically answer, Oh, I do that. I spend time with God. I read my Bible. I go to church. And perhaps you do measure time out for your life for all these things. But let's be honest, for most believers, we measure out time for God, all right, but we measure out the least amount of time we feel we can get away with. And at that, we usually measure out what is left over after we measure out everything else we need time for. And with that in mind, we are going to look at something we rarely measure and something that very few of us even have enough of to measure, and that would be our faith. So, believer, how much faith do you have? how often do you invest in your faith? And how about this one? Is the presence or absence of your faith affecting your life? Yes, faith is something very important and something Christians rarely discuss, and it is vital to the health and well-being of our lives, and yet we all but ignore it. Interestingly enough, Christians often spend a considerable amount of time measuring how much we claim to talk about Jesus and our relationship with Jesus and reading the Bible and going to church and going to Bible studies and talking to others about Christ. But when was the last time you talked about and discussed the sincerity and depth of your faith? Now, for some, they are always measuring their faith and so frequently, in fact, the world is constantly reminded of just how much faith they profess to possess. Unfortunately for these individuals, this is most often nothing more than an attempt to leverage accolades. Of course, on the other end of the spectrum, there are those who are always measuring their faith just as frequently, but they are constantly reminding everyone how very little faith they possess. And unfortunately for those individuals, this is most often nothing more than an attempt to leverage sympathy. So if you have an overabundance of faith, then check it to make sure it's genuine faith and really as strong as you think. And if you have an underabundance of faith, then check it, too, to make sure you are really that faithless and really as weak as you think. Please hear this. I'm not attempting to mock anyone, but I am very much attempting to make a very vivid point, and that of making sure that everyone takes this business of faith very seriously, just as God does. In fact, this is so serious, it is by our measure of faith that it can be a matter of life and death. So let's dig in and do a faith assessment and see how we really measure up. And the presence or absence of faith must be of considerable importance to God, considering we will find faith referenced 244 times in Scripture. And how about we put that into context and we will discover what other significant words are used just as frequently. And tied with the usage of the word faith is anger also mentioned 244 times and very close seconds are the words sacrifice and save and christians certainly have a considerable amount of conversation surrounding those other words but directly discussing faith as it stands on its own generally gets very little attention and recognition so let's look at god's word as we begin our journey into the world of faith And we will start in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, and it says, Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. There it is, the origin of faith. It originates from hearing the Word of Christ. God in the flesh, fully God, fully man, author and Savior, through God's Word, the Bible. But it is important that we understand at this point that the faith God calls us to is a trust in Him, and without seeing Him, and that alone is what marks true godly faith. Hebrews 11.1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. How about 2 Corinthians 5.7, For we walk by faith, not by sight. However, we can't stop here, because even if we possess all this knowledge, we need to put action behind our supposed faith, and so we need to become doers of our faith. James 1.22, be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So knowing about God and knowing about the Bible is nice, but again, until we apply our faith, the net result is zero. And evidence of true faith is one who becomes a doer of the word, as we just read. As our last passage from James states, we will likely think we have accepted Jesus, but in reality we have not, again, because no action was taken. And that is clarified for us here in Matthew 16. You will know them by their fruits, or we can add to that, you will know them by their faith. So once we have taken action, producing real fruit, and become a doer, it is then that our faith prevails. And it is then, and only then, that we are saved by grace through our faith, as in actions speak louder than words. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. All too often we shorten this verse when reciting it to, you are saved by grace. And that is only a half-truth, which makes it a complete lie. It is critical that we do not leave off the last two words, through faith, because it is not just by grace that we are saved, faith is just as big of a component as God's grace. Then once we have received this amazing gift of salvation by grace through faith, it is our faith that then gives us the victory to overcome the world. And we see this in 1 John 5, 4, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And that is a pretty stunning ability to have and an ability that was given to those who believe. And this ties nicely back to our message on Together But Separate, where we discussed how to live in the world that God calls us not to conform to. And here's yet another tool for the believer on how to do that, and that by our faith. But it doesn't end there. God gives us even more. And we see from 1 John that once we put our faith into action and keep exercising our faith throughout our lives, we will be given a reward. James 1.12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Isn't it incredible to see that God rewards us for putting our faith to work? When was the last time you thought about that? Your reward is not just any reward. It is the crown of life promised by God. So at this point, we know a number of things for sure. Faith comes by hearing God's Word and putting God's Word into action. And once we put God's Word into action, faith begins to take shape in the form of genuine hope and being convinced of the things we cannot see. And it is the very thing we cannot see that we are to put our faith in, and that of Jesus Christ, who through the action of our faith, He may become our Lord and Savior of our life. And I say may because if we do not set our faith into action that God requires, we will not be adopted by him as one of his children. We have also learned so far that faith is a work in progress and not something we just come by naturally. It is something we need to work at and work on. And this is very evident from what we read in our passage from Romans 10, 17. Faith comes from hearing. Notice it does not say faith came into your life because you heard. We have two words here indicating our faith grows and that from our word comes and hearing. And both are obviously plural, indicating they are continuing or at least need to be something that continues. But there are many a skeptic of this faith thing and why anyone would just take what is seemingly non-existent and arbitrarily trusting it. But that argument really doesn't stand against reality because there are dozens of things we put our faith in regularly that we can't see and know nothing about other than what someone said. And likely we haven't even read or heard for ourselves directly what that someone said, and likely what we heard was second, fifth, or hundredth hand information. Yet we gobble it up as if it were pure truth, and then go enthusiastically to tell others about it as if it were fact, while all along we can't prove one thing of its validity. Yet when it comes to the Bible and God and faith, we thoroughly question any validity it might have. The skeptics will present such ideas as, you really think you are going to get a crown when you supposedly get whisked to heaven when you die? Do you really believe in this idea of getting a reward for being faithful to this God and working on this invisible relationship? Because if God were so loving and good, he would have already given you some of these rewards by now. And I think these and many more comments I have been presented with for many years are excellent and very valid. And may I suggest you never get irritated with someone who presents this or any other question or statement like it, but rather reply with a structured, rational answer. And this is the time we point out how necessary and very important it is not to take God's Word out of context. To help out a bit, I'm going to give you an analogy. If you see a sign that says, Lost Dog, Reward, I'm assuming you don't call the number on the sign and say, I just saw your sign, and I will swing by in a few minutes to collect my reward, and then I will go and look for your dog. And you know it doesn't work like that. You know full well, in order to collect on your reward, the gift, you must take action, and the action must result in finding the lost dog, and the lost dog must then be reunited with the owner. And only at that point will you be able to collect on your reward. And to this, let's add... That you can't just turn in any lost dog and collect your reward. It must be the dog on the sign. No substitute will result in you getting your reward. How about we take this example one step further? You see a sign that says lost dog reward. You immediately start looking or at least keeping your eye out for this dog you saw a picture of on the sign. You might even start inquiring with the people in your neighborhood as to whether or not they have seen the lost dog And very likely you will even describe what it looks like and provide as much detail you possibly can from the information you got of this random sign stuck on a light post. But fascinatingly enough, what you don't know about this lost dog sign is if any of it is remotely true. In fact, the photo of the dog might not even be of a real dog. It could be nothing more than an AI rendering of a dog. You also have no clue that the owner offering the reward even exists or if they even have any money to give you. The phone number you call might even be directing you to a scammer. The whole thing could be completely fake. But when you saw that sign and the picture, you very likely put instant and full faith in its accuracy. And not only that, you likely took some sort of action on what you could do, and all of it based entirely on faith. Because at this point, you have zero evidence Of its authenticity. In these two examples, we see a couple of things we fully understand because they are the simple realities of life. Yet, when it comes to God, faith in God, trusting His Word, the signs He has posted for all to see, complete with instructions on what to do in order to collect a reward, we often simply dismiss it. We doubt its authenticity and reliability, and sometimes without even a second glance. We often immediately chalk God and the Bible up to nothing but a scam to get us into something fraudulent, and we know better than that. And it is with our faith, however, that we know and trust all of these things about God and the Bible to be false. Have you ever considered we most often identify scammers as those who are trying to get something from us, and that something is money in one form or another? But in reality, getting your money and your identity is not at all difficult and the simplest part of the scammer's job. The hardest part of their business is their marketing and advertising techniques to convince you of keeping something. And that something scammers want you to keep is faith. Faith that no one would be that cunning and slick and cruel to send something that impersonated someone else. And they want you to have full faith that the next email you open, you will trust because it appears that much more real and legitimate. And they count on you not giving what you click on and respond to a second thought because your faith is so strong that it's real. And this is exactly how Satan works in every life on the planet. He has one goal in mind, and he desperately wants you to keep your faith on everything but God. So we all have faith, and lots of it, and we'll always devote it to something, and we get to choose what that something is. It can be faith in good or faith in bad. Faith that will grow us or faith that will destroy us. But in all cases, it will require that we put our faith into action and follow through to completion if we intend to reap any sort of outcome. And so it is with God. We will be rewarded when we have exercised our faith to the best of our abilities and followed through, and then, just like anything else in life, we will get our reward. Let's take a look at 2 Timothy 4, 7-8. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Again, we get the main reward when we have finished the fight and finished the race, and kept the faith. Yes, you can turn your test in half-done, and you can locate a lost dog. But a half-done test is a half-done test, and it is not complete. And a lost dog is not the lost dog. And you will not get a reward for turning in a random dog, nor will you be rewarded turning in a half-done test. In the same way, if you turn in a half-done life, there will be no reward. Yes, folks, rules still very much exist and are still enforced regardless of what some in our society choose to deceive themselves over. But don't overlook the rewards we are given right now, every day, and all while we are still going through the exam of life when we exercise our faith regularly and well. God is not entirely holding out on us until later at all. Are not the gifts of peace, joy, and hope good enough? Now let's take a look at the impact varying degrees of faith have on our lives. And we will start here and look at a few examples of what living life on a full tank of faith looks like. And for that, we'll start in Matthew 17, 20. Jesus said, If you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Nonsense, you say. You're telling me that if I have faith without doubt right now and believe that I can throw a mountain into the ocean, it will happen? That is nothing but pure sensationalism. And at face value, plowing through the words from Jesus here, that could be a logical conclusion. But when you parse the statement out, it very much comes to life. Jesus said, if you have faith no larger than a mustard seed, and let's stop right there. Notice here, Jesus is setting the bar exceptionally low for us. The bar is so low, in fact, it's only one millimeter off the ground. That being the diameter of a mustard seed. That certainly is a very low bar to get over. Yet none of us have hurdled that bar. But why not? Because our doubt is substantially larger than a mustard seed. Our doubt is more on the scale of the size of an avocado pit. Or we can reverse that and say our faith is the size of one human cell, invisible to the human eye. But even Jesus had to repeat himself because no one got it the first time he said it in Matthew 17:20, So he said it again using a different example in Matthew 21:21. And Jesus answered them truly I say to you if you have faith and do not doubt you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree but even if you say to this mountain be taken up and thrown into the sea it will happen. And this is why we can't move mountains or kill a fig tree because all of us fully doubt our ability to even move a speck of lint a micrometer a measurement a thousand times smaller than a millimeter. And we are not going to even try to make it happen because we, quote, know it can't happen. And it's completely ridiculous to even think such foolish things. Is it crazy, though? Is it foolish? Is it truly impossible? But didn't Jesus say it twice, in two different ways? Is that not convincing enough? Don't Christians claim to trust that Jesus, fully God, fully man, is the way, the truth, and the life? Don't Christians claim the Bible, the scriptures, are fully accurate and that God's word is infallible, fully true, without error? Yet we emphatically and absolutely doubt the authenticity of this statement, which is recorded directly from the mouth of Jesus himself. And that makes no sense and points back to Christians being hypocritical in their belief. So this leaves us in a very precarious situation, I think. Saying we fully believe, yet we fully doubt, and worse, deny the possibility or the potential. So why don't we believe we have this ability from God? Only one reason. We have never witnessed any other person do something like it. But if we had witnessed just one person move a mountain, the entire world would be working day and night to remove all doubt from their lives and do everything possible to exponentially increase their faith the human population would be going crazy to gain that ability. There would be faith supplements, faith diets, faith clothing, faith apps, faith seminars. We would even build a faith theme park complete with faith games where we would attempt to move things around the park and all powered by faith alone. But wait a minute, pulling the sarcasm out of this, that sounds exactly like what we are called to do as believers. We are called to exercise our faith to that degree and not to move mountains but to know and trust the possibilities of just how incredible the power of faith is and the power that God has attached to it. Instead, however, we choose to live in a very dangerous place, and that would be doing nothing less than ultimately calling Jesus a liar. Because we still insist, even if it is just in our own mind, that moving anything is simply not real. And surely, someone should have been able to muster up that little bit of faith since the time of Jesus to pull this off. But you see, they haven't, and it won't happen. It's just a figure of speech. Don't know about you, but that is not what Jesus said when he presented this. He did not say he was telling a parable at all. Rather, he stated it as fact and repeated it twice, which makes it true and real and possible to anyone who exercises their faith to that degree. You see, this has nothing to do with our ability. It does, however, have everything to do with our self-determined doubt which results in near-zero faith. We can very easily conclude this message is not worth our time because it just isn't anything we are going to work out. And certainly, after we are done listening to this message, no one is going to be any better off at moving mountains than when we first started. Yes, shockingly, that is ultimately the end result, but again, That has nothing to do with the reality of it being possible. So the only way we can legitimately prove the ability or inability of moving mountains is to follow God's directions on how to move them. And no mountain, let alone a speck of lint, has been moved by faith because no one has chosen to exercise enough faith in God to pull it off. So instead of arguing that it just can't happen and is impossible, how about we get honest and call it for what it is, It is our lack of disciplined faith that is rendering it impossible. Let's stop blaming the reality of something and pin the blame where it is due, and that is on our minuscule amount of faith in the one we claim to trust. Let me be very blunt here. I believe what Jesus states is very possible and very real. However, I know full well I don't have and won't have the amount of faith required in my Lord, to ever experience moving anything. And at least for me, I will admit, it seems very difficult to even comprehend moving anything with faith. But that is because I never attempted to exercise my faith to that degree. And sadly, I am pretty sure I won't, because I am truly filled with that much doubt. And that tells me one thing, I actually do have full faith in something, and that would be my doubt. James 1, 6-8. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded and unstable in all his ways. There is our answer on where even the remotest speck of doubt gets us. It leaves us unstable and very likely not to receive anything of value from God, which includes moving mountains. So where is your faith? In what do you trust and put your faith? Just how weak and pathetic is your faith in our Lord God? And just how regularly do we doubt even the very words of the one we claim to be the source of absolute truth? Will you move mountains or anything for that matter with faith today or prior to leaving this world? It is highly unlikely, but that's our problem. So instead of attempting to hone your faith to move mountains, why don't we just put the little faith we do have to work to encourage others to move their lives closer to God and move into a life of salvation. Let's pray. Gracious Lord and Father, our faith is so very pathetic. It is so weak, and we so seldom exercise our faith. And because of that, spend so much of our lives missing out on the many wonderful and amazing things you have for us. Help us, we ask, that you would press on us the necessity of trusting in you fully and not doubting, as we are so good at doing with our lack of faith. Help us to ask for help in growing our faith and not doubting that it won't work or can't be done. Please give us strength not to move mountains, but to move the lives of those we encounter for you. Help us to have grounded faith in knowing you are in full control of our lives and every life on the planet, past, present, and future, and that no matter the outcome, we will fully trust it is exactly as you see best, no questions asked. And we ask all of this in the name of the one we must place our faith, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.